Washington Irving was visiting the White House and he raved about Dolly Parton. When I was writing that note, I just wanted to use the word fun. That's fine. It's a five dollar word. That was a wild ride the for me in a few seconds because <laughs> what I thought you were going to say Go was that he had a ballistic missile. <laughs> Welcome to the Presequential Podcast, friends, where we go from 1 to 45 in under 90 and discuss each president's life, legacy, and little-known facts. Thank you for joining us. I'm Ryan Allwert, joined as always by... Blaine Zimmerman. I write the songs. Wow. And you pick the books. I, oh, that's what I'm supposed to say. You I pick, pick the, the books. books. Yeah. yeah. You pick the books. Uh, that was a Barry Manilow reference? Yeah. It was really early for a Barry Manilow reference. Well, I was on a classic rock is he, binge is classic? this weekend. He's classic something. I don't know. I don't know if he's rock. Anyway, Blaine, this is episode four. I'm jazzed about this episode. Tell me a little bit about it. Why are you so excited? Uh, mostly because we're getting into that phase where I didn't know anything about the presidents. Mm. So obviously a lot of people know things. Well, you think you know things about Washington, Adams, Jefferson. And now we're kind of into that phase of like, yeah, I know who James Madison is, but mm-hmm. I don't know anything about him. And then we're going to quickly get into a phase where we know nothing about these people. Oh, no. Oh, no. Very. <laughs> Which funny. is going to be the most exciting part of this podcast. Yeah, I think. we're here to learn. Not only do you pick the books that we read about each President Blaine, but you also name the episodes. Episode yes. four is named... The realist. Mm. Yes. So he was well known as being a realist throughout his career. A few people called him a realist quite a bit. So I thought it was fitting. The only other fitting title I threw around was the Republican because he founded the Republican Party, which we'll talk about. However, like because things have kind of flipped since then, I thought the realist was a little bit better of a title. I like it. This episode, we read the book, the very creatively titled book, James Madison by one Richard Brookheiser. Shout out to Richard. Thank you for writing the book that we read. It's 250 pages long. The shortest, did you just say thanks, Dick? Yeah. The shortest of the books that we've read up to this point are running page tally blame. Do you have a good guess? How how many pages do you think? We're over 2,000. We are. We're at 2,219 pages. But this was a crisp, quick read. Yeah. And it sucked you in. Like, I really liked the way Richard wrote this book. Mm -hmm. You were in it. I was engrossed. And Mm. then it was over. And as always, we enjoy a cocktail while we're recording this podcast. What are we drinking tonight, Blaine? So James Madison famously was a big champagne guy. And I texted you guys last night. You say that like you're surprised. Mm -hmm. Well, I texted Russ and Ryan last night and was like, I'm not drinking champagne at night. Like I'll never sleep and I don't want an upset tummy. So why not go with the champagne of beers? There you go. Miller High Life. Miller High Life. (laughs) Cheers. We're drinking to James Madison tonight, guys. Cheers. 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 There we go. And whatever you're sipping on, enjoy. Mm. Cheers to you. Unless you're driving. That's right. Which you probably are. Or eight years old and just fascinated <laughs> with the president. Oh, man. Blaine, <laughs> what do you remember about James Madison from, let's say, middle school social studies? He was one of the signers of the Declaration of Independence. Okay. That's it. That's it. That's it. I might have remembered that he was number four. I knew that he wrote the Constitution. And I knew that he was a very short man. I had a feeling he was sick a lot Mm. based on the representation of him in Hamilton. Oh, all right. So you're going for more of a modern reference. Well, because that's the only reference I had of him before I read this. Yeah. In the the play, the guy coughs a lot. Mm. And like they make it seem like he's sickly. And we find out he was quite the hypochondriac. Yes, he He was. He was also only five foot tall. He was just a little guy. Yeah. Did that part of James's life resonate with you specifically, Blaine? No, I'm not. I'm the I... exact average height of an American. <laughs> I'm five foot nine. I'm the exact okay. average height. All right. Well, agree to disagree. But... Just because you're a giant human. <laughs> it's the hair. 
Uh, you ready to dive into James Madison's life? Let's dive. Okay. James's family had been in Virginia since the mid-1600s. They were a long line of tobacco planters and therefore slaveholders, as many of the founding fathers' ancestors were. James was born on March 16, 1751, at his maternal grandfather's plantation in Port Conway, Virginia, known as Bell Grove. His father was James Madison Sr., who was a prominent Virginian tobacco planter and a colonel in the Virginia militia during the Revolution. His mother, Nellie Conway Madison, was also born at Bell Grove, where he was born. The town Port Conway was named after Nellie's daddy, Mr. Conway. I don't remember his first Conway, name. Conway, Twitty. Twitty. Yeah. Madison. Madison. That's right. <laughs> James was the oldest of 12 children and moved to the new family home, Montpelier, in the 1760s, kind of in that, let's say, middle school age. And only half of them survived. Yeah. It was hard being anyone in the the 18th century. Yeah. Uh, James studied from age 11 to 16 under a Scottish tutor named Donald Robertson, who also taught math, geography, the classics, and Latin to a bunch of other wealthy Virginia planters' kids. He got around. Donald Robertson did. Uh, during these very formative years, the British Parliament passed the Stamp Act of 1765, which by and large kickstarted the next 10 years of foment and rebellion within the American colonies. Mm-hmm. When I was writing that note, I just wanted to use the word foment. That's fine. It's a $5 word. In 1769, James enrolled in the College of New Jersey, which is modern day Princeton, instead of kind of the lowlier College of William and Mary down there in Williamsburg. Which is where Jefferson went. Yeah, I think they were afraid that he was going to get sick. Well, he got sick a lot. He got sick a so lot. that was probably founded. Yeah, the tribe, William, William and Mary's the tribe. That's their that's their mascot. Mm-hmm. Oh wow! For you. Do, you, do you like know all the mascots? I used to. That used to be one of the things. That that's cool. Small Blaine knew. <laughs> I I studied the Capitals as a child and like the ten brightest stars in the sky. Just weird stuff. Yeah, I wanted to be a sports announcer growing oh, cool. up. So like I knew all of the college mascots for that's some fun. reason. Like like there were three hundred some. I. There's like a bunch of them, too, that don't end with the letter S. That's one of them. The tribe. Yeah. Wow. Man, you learn something new every day, Mm -hmm. especially when you're listening to this podcast. I hope so. Back to the president, James Madison. He graduates uh, a three-year program. He does it in two. He graduates in 1771, and he stays on for a victory lap, studying under the tutelage of Scottish-American Presbyterian minister, signer of the Declaration of Independence, and College of New Jersey president, John Witherspoon. No idea if he was related to Reese. Uh, but that's another podcast. Yeah. Okay. In New Jersey, James was steeped in the liberalism of the Enlightenment era and became an ardent believer in civil and political liberty. By the time he left school for home at Montpelier in 1772, James knew Latin, Greek, French, Italian, and some Hebrew. Um, he was studying Hebrew as another language, thinking, eh, maybe I'll go into ministry. Didn't. Uh, it was somewhat of a prerequisite, though. That was kind of always on the table for everyone back then, though. Yeah. It was like, am I going to be a preacher or a lawyer mm-hmm. and then go into law or and then go into politics? I'm sorry. Correct. Yeah. Uh, fun fact, he's known today by Princeton as being their first ever grad student, though grad students weren't really a thing back then, but they acknowledge him as their first grad student. And after returning home in 1772, James spent his time tutoring his younger siblings, again, of which he had 11, who were constantly just passing away, it seemed, and reading but never practicing law, like he said. Two years later, 1774, Madison takes a seat on the local committee of safety, which oversaw the local Virginia Patriot militia. That's sorry. Go ahead. The committee of safety just yeah. sounds... It sounds like something your HOA puts together. <laughs> <laughs> 
Like, there's Barb and Kathy. They're the committee of safety. Oh, Babs. Yeah. She's the worst. Always coming around, scoping out decks and fences. Your bushes are too high. I'm sorry to tell you. I'm on the committee of safety. Yeah. A year later in 1775, he serves as his dad's second-in-command as colonel of the Orange County Militia. That's kind of convenient, right? Mm -hmm. His dad needs a number two. He's like, James, what are you doing? I'm just teaching Hebrew to all these kids. I might be a preacher. I don't know. I don't know, Dad. (laughs) Who knows my age? I'm a graduate at 17. I just wish that I was elected to the 5th Virginia Convention in Williamsburg. I just want to write our Declaration of Rights with George Mason. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, His fellow delegates, you named George Mason, Thomas Jefferson, old Tommy J. Patrick Henry, of course, give me liberty or give me death. It declared Virginia an independent state, and he produced it. Well, he didn't, but they all did. Produced its first constitution and declaration of rights for about three months, May through July of 1775. Madison improved the language of his older fellow delegate George Mason's draft of the Virginia Declaration of Independence, specifically preparing an amendment to the phrase within it that called for, quote, the fullest toleration in the exercise of religion, end quote, to his new amendment. All men are equally entitled to the full and free exercise size of religion. So basically he said no one can say that men can be allowed to worship as they wish. They they worship as they wish because it's their natural born right, right to do so. He's like and I learned Hebrew to prove it. That's right. I did nothing with it. Yeah. But Lachaim Following the stint in the Virginia Convention, Madison lost a 1777 bid for election to the state's House of Delegates because he didn't buy booze for voters on Election Day. Now, this was a common custom back then known as treating. Back then, you'd basically go to your polling place and announce in person, out loud, in public, in front of the sheriff, sometimes the other candidates, and basically everybody you knew. Um, it's not the way we vote today. I mean, it kind of is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're right. There are some similarities. Yeah. Charles Porter. Charles Porter. It doesn't hurt to own a tavern when you're running for office. Madison believed that bribing electors with booze was contrary to Republican principles. But Charles, old Chuck Porter, man, he yeah. had no qualms I wonder, at all. I didn't look it up, but is that why we call Porter's Porter? I don't think so. I think that would be a stretch. I okay. think a porter was more the drink that they would... Because I know Washington was a big porter fan. I thought he was a port fan. I think I port know. is like a fortified wine. Well, no, no. I know the difference, but I definitely thought Do it was you? porter. Yeah. <laughs> Port's a wine, a porter's like coffee beer. I think a porter, as I understand it, was more a guy who would schlep stuff off ships. Oh, you're saying that because that's his name from, yeah. yeah. Maybe maybe Chuck Porter used to be a porter. I don't know. It's possible. I think they're two different things. Ellis I, Island, you know. But I love where your brain is. <laughs> I love the way you're thinking, Blaine. So anyway, Chuck Porter, he liquors everyone up and won, and Madison did not forget that. Despite this setback, Madison was soon chosen for an open seat on Virginia's Council of State, where he served for two years. By 1780, he was serving as the youngest delegate to the Continental Congress in Philadelphia at 29 years young during the middle and pretty grim endgame of the revolution. I mean, he must have looked like a baby to some of the other delegates. Oh, I would imagine. Like, here comes this guy. Like, especially next to Washington. Oh, gosh. He literally looked up to him. Yeah. Well, and speaking of that, when... Go ahead. uh, I love that you're about to segue into something. Well, one of his buddies, Joseph Johnson, was six foot tall. Oh, Joe Johnson? Yeah. Mm. And uh, not shoeless Joe. Mm. No, he could have been. He could have not worn shoes. When uh, the soldiers were coming to storm the Continental Congress for their back pay... Yes, I remember this. Congress had to, like, retreat to different places, and he also had to share a bed with someone a la John Adams and Ben Franklin. Ben Franklin. And so he shared a bed with Joe Johnson, who was six foot tall. And I would just imagine, for one, how many beds were long enough for that guy? Oh, gosh. His feet had to be hanging off the end. That's quite the difference in people. 
It's basically I mean, like a king size bed to Madison, but a very small twin to Joe Johnson. But maybe that's how they paired him up. Little guy, big guy. You guys have a bed. Like they didn't want two big guys in the same bed because right. they wouldn't fit. Yeah, so that's probably it. They were the founding fathers for a reason. You're so smart, Blaine. Madison was an ardent Francophile and supporter of Ben Franklin while he was minister to France, as well as Lafayette, the Lancelot of the revolutionary set. Drink. He was everybody that met Lafayette liked him. Yeah, he was a good guy. Loved republicanism. Just loved it. Yeah. Didn't he have an American flag on his wall? He named his son George Washington. No pressure. Uh, Madison also around this time advocated for westward expansion and amending the Articles of Confederation to grant Congress the power to independently raise revenue through tariffs on imports, which Hamilton and Washington favored. After serving in Congress for three years, the war ends with the Treaty of Paris in 1783, and Madison is elected to the Virginia House of Delegates a year later in 84, where he continued to advocate for religious freedom and with Tommy Jay in 1786. I did want to bring up, though, that he did get the gold star for perfect attendance during the Constitutional Convention. He rarely missed anything. Yeah, he never missed those. That's why he got the gold star. You think he'd be the guy that would be like, hey, on like a Friday, he's like, you forgot to assign us homework. Oh, 100%. That's James Madison. He's that kid. He was the first graduate student from Princeton. Yeah. Look what I can do. Anyway, with Tommy J in 1786, he drafts the Virginia Statute for Religious Freedom, which Jefferson, to go back to episode three, Jefferson didn't even put that he was president on his tombstone, but he did put that on his tombstone. We did miss an important part of the Constitutional Convention. If it weren't for James Madison's notes, we would have no idea what happened. He took copious notes. Well, they kind of had a gag order on what was going on in there. Hmm. And he took notes and hid them in his hat. And if it weren't for him, we would have no idea how that all came to be. Let's drink to James yeah, Madison. It was just being the, that guy hiding him in his hat. Yeah. Oh man, this beer tastes like the champagne of beers. <laughs> All right, so he joins up in Maryland with Alexander Hamilton and others at the Annapolis Convention of 1786 to call for constitutional reform. He gets reelected to Congress and convinces his colleagues of the need for the Philadelphia Convention, which lasts from May through September of 1787. He's the first out-of-town delegate to show up in Philadelphia. And man, is he ready to write a constitution. He's stoked, man. Yeah. like, let me add it. He presents the Virginia plan, along with Edmund Randolph and George Mason, among other Virginia delegates, which called for, among other things, three branches of government. Do you remember which ones they are? Of course you do. You wouldn't be doing this podcast if you didn't remember what they are. Executive. There it is. Judicial. There it is. And? And the third one. Starts with L. (laughs) The legislative. Legislative. And a bicameral Congress. I just like the word bicameral. I learned that as I was taking some notes. It means two caramels. That's right. right. (laughs) It's a really sticky Congress. Uh, Apportioned by population. So Madison was very vocal during the season in Philadelphia, speaking over 200 times and being widely respected by his older colleagues for his younger age. Uh, His influence during this season ensured the executive branch had veto power over federal laws and would be elected independently of Congress through the Electoral College. So if you've got issues with the Electoral College... Bring it up with James Madison. Which people seem to have. Now. Yeah. You, you mentioned he took copious notes. Uh, I think he knew how big of a deal this was within yeah. world history. I think he foresaw posterity. I think that's where one of his similarities to Washington was. Because yeah. like I talked about in the Washington episode, I think Washington understood the importance of being the first president. And that's why he was so thoughtful about what he put in his diary. And I think Madison was the same way in that. He realized, like, hey, this is is kind of a big deal. Like, we should probably document this. Well, also, if you're going to have a guy who's going to do it, it's going to be him. Somebody who graduated a year early, studied his face off, you know, for for three solid years. He's going to be a good guy to do it. Yeah, he's like, five of my brothers and sisters didn't die for me to not take these notes. Gosh, he went through a lot of quills. A lot of quills. As Congress winds up his time. I didn't think about that. What, a quill? 
No, just the like what the process was for note taking at the time. Like, how did he keep that a secret? I think he had his own method of shorthand, and then he went back, like when um, they were taking a break. Yeah, and the guys are like, "You want to get a cup of coffee?" And he's, he's like, like, "I'm I good. Gotta, I gotta gotta study. I gotta transcribe." He this was that guy. They're like, yeah. "You want to go out on Friday?" He's like, "Oh, I got a big test on Monday. Sorry, I got to record the Constitutional Congress for yeah. posterity." Uh, in Philadelphia, September of 1787, Madison was appointed along with Alexander Hamilton. His name is Alexander Hamilton. And Governor Morris. Yes, that's actually his first name was Governor. Governor. This is an entirely different podcast, but Governor Morris's life is fascinating. Mm. Also, the writer, the actual person that put pen to paper for the Bill of Rights. That's right. Yeah. Maybe a bonus episode. Yeah, he's a fascinating human being. Well, if you like him so much. One leg. Why aren't you? He did? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. A wooden leg, like a peg. Yeah, a peg leg. Yeah. And I think that they used him for some of the inspiration for the guy in Pocahontas, the cartoon. Uh, oh. The guy with the, you know what I'm talking about, John sure. Smith's yeah. boss. Yeah. Some of the inspiration for that guy was built around Governor Morris. Okay. Yeah, I could have completely made that up, but I think I heard that somewhere. I know the answer to this question is Governor Morris's parents, but what kind of parents see a newborn baby and say, I've got a great name. Should we? Na- oh, you're going to name him after my dad? No, 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 no. I can answer that question. Okay, go ahead. So his mom's last name was Governor. His oh. dad's last name was Morris. So they just combined them. Do you think he ever, at some point, wanted to run for governor just so people could? Call he him was governor. a governor. Well, he was. Yeah, he was governor in New York for a little gosh. while, I believe. That's very meta. Yeah, we should go on record and say, or at not- least if he wasn't, his dad was his uh, or his mom's dad. I should say maybe his mom's dad was and was Governor Governor. We, we need to go on record and say we're not historians. We're just no. Too- that's from shout out to the dollop. Everything I know about Governor Great Morris podcast. is from the dollop. Great pod. I was listening to it while running. So that's yeah. like things I heard and things that stuck. Yeah. Hopefully I got most of it right. Well, Hamilton, Morris, and Madison get assigned to this very bougie named Committee of Style to produce a final version of what would become the actual Constitution, which was signed by 39 delegates representing 12 of the 13 states. Do you know which state abstained? It's one of the northeastern states, correct? Uh Delaware? No. That's more mid-Atlantic, but oh, oh. Okay. It's also a tiny state. It's very tiny. It's the tiniest. Roe, Rhode Island. There it is. Little Rhodey. I do want to point out, though, that poor John Dickinson. Hmm. Uh, should have been a signer of the Declaration of Independence, but stayed homesick that day. Yeah, he did. He was like, and ah. now he's in history for not signing the Constitution. the Constitution. Yeah, yeah. I think he had someone else sign for him. Right? He did. He did. But I mean, that sucks, bro. <laughs> <laughs> like of all the days to get sick. Yeah, yeah. You do realize how important this is, John? Yeah. I don't know. I'm a little stuffed up. Yeah. Anybody have any chamomile? <laughs> he's like a hot towel, maybe. Uh, side note, Rhode Island. I learned this. Neither Rhode Road nor an island. <laughs> that's correct. Uh, wow. Yes, that wasn't where I was going. But yes, that is also factual. <laughs> oh, I thought factual. that's what you were no. I was trying to guess. Smallest state, longest name. Also looks like Indiana. It does look it, like a very miniature Indiana. It does, with a little like... Yeah. On the we're here from Indiana. Side. We're recording yeah. in Indianapolis. We, we're both Hoosier boys. But uh, Rhode Island and Providence Plantations was the full name of the state. Although I think recently there that was up for debate, maybe to change and take off the... And the Providence. Anyway, 
Constitution, maybe you've heard of it, signed September 17, 1787. Also, like, I feel like at this point, four episodes in, our listeners have caught on to the fact that I say Declaration of Independence Mm -hmm. and Constitution pretty much Mm -hmm. willy-nilly with each other. I think the Declaration fires me up a little bit more than the Constitution. I mean, that's fair. I'm just saying that, like, I make the mental gaffe of replacing the words a lot. (laughs) That happens. And I catch myself doing it, so I'm sure people are in their cars like, no, you idiot. (laughs) Dang it. And for that, I don't apologize. Brenda, take an email. Uh, Madison would safety on this. Madison would be the last signer of the Constitution to die 49 years later in 1836. So I think as I was reading that, I thought that was really interesting to say. We well, were so young. Correct. Yeah. But to be the last one of the document that he is in posterity, say, considered the father of. Mm-hmm. I think that's pretty fitting. It's kind of yeah. poetic, right? All right. You ready to jump into the Federalist Papers? Yeah. Let's do it. We're going we're gonna to kind of breeze here, all right? Okay. So soon after the Constitution signed, opponents of it, known as the Anti-Federalists, began a public campaign against ratification. In response, Hamilton and future first Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, John Jay, began publishing a series of pro-ratification newspaper articles in New York City. Jay soon dropped out from the project, and Hamilton approached Madison, who was in New York on some congressional business, to write some of the essays of what would become known as the Federalist Papers. So Hamilton, Madison, and Jay wrote 85 essays in the span of six months from October of 1787 through April of 1788, with Madison writing 29 or roughly a third of the essays. John Jay only wrote five. Hamilton wrote the other 51. 51. Good math. Uh, There is one up for debate. Number 63. Yes. School me on this. Could potentially have been Hamilton. Historians go back and forth on it because the way it was written in the tense, I think, is what it is, that they're not convinced that it was Madison. Okay. This sounds like a Caribbean orphan wrote it. Yeah, because people, I mean, there are a lot of people that their entire lives are dedicated to those documents. But like, it is, the the Federalist Papers are kind of interesting because like saying that those three wrote 85 of them is almost like saying like me and Tom Brady have won five Super Bowls. (laughs) Yeah, it was basically Hamilton doing it. Yeah. Gosh. He'd love to write. Anyway, Virginia ratifies the Constitution later that summer on June 25th, 1787. New York follows the next month. Two hugely influential states back then, still to an extent. And on February 4th, 1789, General George Washington was unanimously elected first president of the United States. Around the same time, Madison defeated his older Virginian neighbor James Monroe in the 5th district election with 57% of the vote and gained a seat in Congress. But you skipped 1788. I did, so you could jump in with your point. So, because he won the election to represent Virginia to ratify the Constitution against Charles Porter. Came back. Yeah. He's so like, hey, Charles Porter, Porter was me? the one that, if you remember from 15 minutes ago, yeah. won the election on booze. Chuck and D. they were both running against each other to be the ratifier from Virginia. Mm-hmm. The ratifier E, the rat the ratifier. The, the ratification association. He beat Chuck Porter out. Yeah, so so who really won, Chuck? Yeah. Washington gets elected. Madison writes his inaugural address. He does. Writes the House's response to the inaugural address, yep. and then writes Washington's response to the House's response to Washington's address. That amazed address. me when I read that. Yeah. I get like, I get both of the, like the first two. Or like any two of those, I'm like, okay, that makes sense. But to write all three, that's pretty astounding. It made me think of like the shower arguments you have, like after the argument where you think of all the things you could have said. Yes. <laughs> you just, you hash it out with the conditioner <laughs> bottle. Yeah. 
You condition your hair? I can tell. It looks oh, very luxurious, you. Blaine. Uh, during this season in Congress, Madison also establishes and helps to fill three cabinet positions for Washington. He played matchmaker between Washington and Thomas Jefferson, who became Secretary of State, and worked in secret with Jefferson and Hamilton towards the Compromise of 1790, in which Hamilton won the decision for the national government to take over and pay the state debts, and Jefferson and Madison obtained the national capital for the South. And then he helped with the first two amendments yes. that didn't actually go through. The first two amendments that Correct. were written weren't amendments that we know today. Yes. One of them was modifying the number of constituents for the states of Congress and regulating the pay. Okay. And that ended up getting passed as an amendment in 1992. Wow. So it was written all the way back in, what, 1790-ish? Yeah. yeah. And doesn't actually go into effect until Clinton. Man. Well, he studied 200 amendments that had been proposed at the state ratifying conventions. Madison introduces the Bill of Rights on June 8th, 1789. His amendments contain numerous restrictions on the federal government and would protect, among other things, freedom of religion, speech, the right to peacefully assemble. Madison was largely responsible for the proposals to guarantee freedom of the press, protect property from government seizure, and ensure jury trials. And the Bill of Rights was the real big issue with the original ratification of the Constitution. Yes. Because George Washington was like, it doesn't need any. These are unspoken they're already covered and people were like no 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 we need them written down can, can i get that in writing yeah yeah can you send me an email what's an email yeah sorry general <laughs> of madison's 12 amendments formally proposed to congress 10 of them like you said were ratified december 15th 1791 so to recap james madison little guy but he did a big deal he wrote young the constitution guy. young guy yeah he's like one of those tech ceos yeah yeah he'd for sure be that that guy oh yeah for yeah, sure yeah he wrote the Constitution and the Bill of Rights in the same amount of time it took most of us to get our undergrad. Correct. About four years. How you doing? All right? Oh, yeah. Okay. I'm, I'm, I'm doing great, too. Yeah, Thank, I oh, can thanks tell. For not, thanks for not asking. <laughs> sweet of you. All right. You, so I feel like you set me up to not ask. I did. February of 1791, Washington signed Hamilton's banking bill into law, which Madison and Jefferson strongly opposed, fearing it threatened Republican principles. Along with Philip Freneau, they founded the National Gazette in Philly to oppose Hamilton's policies. Around the time of the French Revolutionary Wars in 1792 and 93, these opponents to Hamilton coalesced into the Democratic Republican Party, which Madison became the de facto leader of after Jefferson left the political scene around 1793. In late 1794, early 1795, Madison and Washington have a break in their long friendship because of the passing of the Jay Treaty, which established 10 years of peaceful trade between the U.S. and Britain, and that outraged Madison and his fellow Francophile Jeffersonian Republicans. And right around here yes. is where he meets his famous wife. The love of his life. Dolly Madison. Yeah. Uh, not the baker. Dolly Payne Todd. Correct. Introduced by... Well, I, I'm going to... Go on record and say that I think in one of these episodes, you called him a garbage human being. I, I stand by that. You statement. stand by that. Okay. Yeah. Yes. Aaron Burr. Aaron Burr. Yeah. Uh, I mean, he was a treasoner. Treason. He was a treasonous human. Like A treasoner, I think you're the word you're looking for, is traitor? Well, yeah. Was is every... I was trying to throw treason in there because you... it feels like it has more weight. Yeah. You just wanted to feel fancy <clears throat> for a while. That's true. I mean, That's you fine. used the words earlier. Treasoner. Yeah. Bicameral. <laughs> Uh, I can't remember the other words that made me feel smart, but yeah. He marries 26-year-old widow, 17 years his junior, Dolly Payne Todd. 
A Virginian Quaker whose planter father had emancipated his slaves after the revolution, Dolly had recently lost her husband, both in-laws, and one of her two sons to a yellow fever epidemic that ravaged Philadelphia in August 1793, killing over 5,000 people in four months. Not a good time to be in Philadelphia. People move. Madison adopted Dolly's surviving son, John, known as Payne. They never had biological children of their own, which may have been due to infertility or... Madison's private fears of the epilepsy that he suffered from privately possibly being passed down to his children. Yeah, there's theory that because of his hypochondria, he didn't want to put that on his kids. Yes. Yeah. And also he'd come from a family of 12 children and he's like, "Ah, I don't know if I want to do that again. Yeah, he Dolly had her famous ice cream, which he invented an ice house for. Go into this, this. This was really intriguing. So. And I don't remember all the details of it, but he basically engineered an ice house at Montpelier so you could keep the famous Dolly Madison ice cream cold. Dolly gets what Dolly wants. Yeah. And I mean, at the time, it was you basically just use salt Mm. to preserve things rather than try to like keep them cold. So like from an engineering standpoint, he basically created freezers or refrigerators, however you want to look at it. And it was basically, if I remember right, they just they built it over a piece of the river or something. Okay. To where they could keep the ice underneath. At this point, I'm just, just going to believe whatever. Yeah, you're I don't saying. remember exactly how it was constructed, but it had something to do with the ice being underneath the ice house, and okay. that's what kept everything cool inside. And it, she had several rep- recipes for for ice cream. I think I read somewhere that her favorite, one of her favorite flavors was, and I'm going to throw up a little bit in my mouth as I say this, oyster ice cream. Oh God, I didn't. What? Now, don't knock it until you try it. I'm gonna. Oyster ice cream, the official oh sponsor God. of the Presequential Podcast. Does it have the same consistency? Mm. You know what I want to put together? <laughs> Oysters and dairy. Oh, no. It's like the least kosher dessert of all time. I'm very uncomfortable. Really, really popular with with the Hebrew population of D.C. in that time. Really? No. Oh, because now then I was going to go to another place and be like, well, now I'm... Now like, if you really want to try it, get yeah. in the swirl with the chocolate. Oh my gosh, that sounds so terrible. Hey kids, are you going to eat all that oyster ice cream? <laughs> oh, oh <laughs> God. Papa, can we have more? <laughs> What's the I can't imagine. Like, is it chewy? Do you have to just straight swallow it? Like, I don't know. Do, you, do you put hot sauce on it? I think it probably has the consistency of cold snot. Oh God! Mm-hmm. That Let's just talk so about awful. this just for a little bit longer. <laughs> just a little bit. Oyster ice cream. What makes someone go? You know what this needs? Some oysters. Some oysters. Yeah. I. <sighs> it's kind of like I mean, you know, you're by the ocean. Yeah. They're plentiful. They were by the ocean. I guess they didn't, they had never tasted Rocky Road at that point. No, well, no. They've, ex- they experienced Rocky Road. They did. Wow, metaphor. <laughs> wow. That's really good. All right. So, ice cream, Dolly Madison, Ice House. All oysters. right. Moving on. Did you, did you just assert that James Madison might have invented the refrigerator uh, or been a, a founding father of refrigeration? Yeah, I did. All right. Yeah. yeah let's just James say it. Whirlpool Madison. <laughs> A lot of people don't know that was his nickname. They called him Maytag in college. Yeah. Oh, gosh. He needed where, one fix. He could be there in under an hour. Where were we? Stop. Washington steps down from the presidency ahead of the 1796 election. Madison pushes Tommy J to run. Okay. He loses to Federalist John Adams and because of the electoral system at the time, becomes his opponent's vice president, which that's just weird. Yeah, you, we you would covered have thought that, that. Yeah, we did. If you, if you want to listen to that, that was episode two, which was writer. 
The Voice. The Voice. Episode three is described. Sorry. Wow, we should know that. That's all right. That's why you're here. In 1799, Madison is elected to the Virginia legislature where he and Tommy J. I just like calling him Tommy J. by the way. I haven't picked up on that. I just like that. Set their sights on the election of 1800. Attacked Adams' alien and sedition acts, but conveniently disregarded Thomas Jefferson's nullification proposals from the Kentucky and Virginia resolutions. These basically said, hey, the state's got the ability to shoot down and nullify any federal law that it doesn't agree with. Which I think I might have proposed in that episode that that could have been seedlings for uh civil foment yeah a very uh, the precursor to the precursor of this there was war. always the state's rights argument against the overall i mean that was the whole federalist versus anti-federalist yep. jive yes. yes a little flash forward here but jackson that was a really interesting eye-opening thing for me reading about his views on states rights yeah it's putting the old cart before the horse jefferson and burr win the election Say what you will, but without Burr, Madison probably would not have ever met old Dolly. Without Aaron Burr, we would not have oyster ice cream. (laughs) See, another reason he's a garbage human being. (laughs) There there it is. It's it's a circle of... More ammunition for me. Dolly really uh, defined the modern role of the first lady. December 14, 1799. You remember what happened at the tail end of 1799? A very tragic event Mm, for the entire country. Washington dies at Mount Vernon. Yeah, yeah, of course I remember that. Yeah, sure you did. The earlier break in their friendship (laughs) was more on the side of Washington. Madison stayed loyal to his longtime father finger until the end. Despite not having any foreign political experience, Madison is appointed by Jefferson to become Secretary of State. Along with Secretary of the Treasury Albert Gallatin, Madison becomes one of Jefferson's closest political advisors and allies over the next eight years. Madison's dad dies in 1801, and at the age of 50, James inherits the family plantation and home at Montpelier, along with his father's numerous slaves. Around this time, Blaine, Madison ran a very interesting social experiment in the early 1800s. Do you want to, do you want to talk about this? So Madison liked to party and so so one night at a dinner at the white house he wanted to hold an experiment to see how many bottles of wine it takes to produce a hangover um oddly the result was not recorded (laughs) (laughs) no one had parchment and a quill to to tally up the votes uh that's one of those things like i would have loved to be in a fly on the wall you know what we should do you know how it, it like sucks after you drink a bunch of these like, let's figure out where that tipping point is, <laughs> and then we'll know moving yeah. forward, like, this is where you stop. He was the Malcolm Gladwell of the early 1800s, <laughs> basically, is what you're saying. I, I kind of like that experiment, because I, I, I kind of look at Madison, and I'm like, you're you're a little too cool for school. Or he no, you're, you're, you're actually cooler than school. Like, you don't really yeah. hang out on the weekends with the guys. But, but what we like, didn't realize was he's, I mean, it was an experiment. It was for science. Well, I mean, when you're his size, too, you probably get pretty drunk pretty quickly. You'd think so. He's just a little guy. In 1802, Tommy J. and Madison dispatched James Monroe to France to negotiate the purchase of New Orleans. They got the entirety of Louisiana instead from the stretch-for-cash Napoleon. They got over 800,000 acres of land for a cool 15 mil. Mm-hmm. So Monroe but didn't get Florida. Didn't get Florida. Which it's like, surprise, we got a lot. Ah, yeah, because they thought Florida was in there. Yeah, which we'll talk more about in the Monroe episode, mm-hmm. episode five. We talked a little bit about last week. Yes. In 1805 and 06, American ships were being attacked by both the British and the French, and American sailors were being impressed. Uh, Madison and Jefferson convinced Congress to pass the Embargo Act of 1807, which totally banned all exports to foreign nations. This act turned out to be highly unpopular and ineffective, especially in New England. In 1808, Madison overcomes internal opposition from James Monroe, 
and soundly defeats Federalist Charles Pinckney of South, South Carolina uh, to become the fourth president of the United States, being sworn in on March 4th, 1809. And then right around there is kind of where they looked at Monroe and they were like, we got you. Like, don't worry. Yeah. Just hang tight. Yeah. We're thinking about calling it the Virginia dynasty. And before we go to break, I do. Yeah. I did, wanted to touch on that for for people that were so ardent about being against the concept of like a monarchy. Mm-hmm. They essentially established one. Yeah. By creating a Virginia monarchy. While it wasn't hereditary, yes. it was very much a monarchy. Yeah. Because they decided who would be next. Yep. They decided, like they, they figured out and they were like, it's going to be Jefferson. Then it's going to be Madison. Then yes. it's going to be, they were like, just wait your turn, bro. Yeah. We got you. You're going to be the next in line. Yes. And it was kind of a quintessential monarchy. It just mm. didn't fit the, the hereditary portion of the definition. Yes. Yeah. So. How you doing? You want to take? Um, yeah, I think with that, it's a good time to yeah. go to break. Let's take a little breather. And then we'll jump into uh, Madison becoming president, the fourth president in the War of 1812. You're listening to the Presequential Podcast. We're going to be back. Have you ever opened your pantry and wondered, what am I going to do with these 32 half-used Yankee candles in here? Listen, home decorating can be hard, especially when you've got a thousand other things going on. You need the Jealous Neighbor. My sister Heather started the Jealous Neighbor to help homeowners use the furniture and decor they already have in their home, add to it on a budget, and discover the home they've always wanted. Whether you need help just sprucing up your home's entryway or you need your entire first floor redecorated, go to facebook.com slash thejealousneighbor to schedule your consultation with with my sister Heather. She will guide you through an hour consultation in person or virtually, help you assess the furniture and decor you already have in your home, and give you a plan to take your home from bow to wow. Get an hour of redecorating with Heather free when you mention that you heard about The Jealous Neighbor on the Presequential Podcast. Go to facebook.com slash thejealousneighbor today. Hey, welcome back. We are so glad that you're listening to the Presequential Podcast or enduring the Presequential Podcast, perhaps. It's a marathon, not a sprint. That's right. And you're a marathon runner, so you know what you're talking about, don't you, Blaine? (laughs) Yes. Madison just became the fourth president of the United States of America. It is March of 1809. Just defeated Pickney. Yes. And I think that now would be a good time to bring in our resident vice presidential expert. Hmm. Our good friend Russ Lifka. Russ, um, welcome. Yeah, welcome. I hear, Wayne, I hear there's thanks. something interesting about this election and with the vice president. Sure. So the vice presidential candidate under Madison was George Clinton and the P Funk Railroad. The P Funk All Stars yeah. Railroad. Just for the funk of it. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> nice, well played. So George Clinton was actually the first governor of New York. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was a Revolutionary War hero. He was best friends with George Washington, so he had a lot of weight behind him. And everybody wanted him as their vice president because he had all the New York electorates. He was ride or die New York. Mm. Like the only thing he cared about federal politics wise was how federal politics affected New York. So if it was in his favor, he took it in his favor. And it was always really important to keep that New York Virginia relationship. Correct. Absolutely. Yes. Because you don't want the a Virginia dynasty. No. God forbid. <laughs> Offense, Virginia. So he was actually the vice president for Jefferson as well. And the only reason Jefferson brought him in was for his New York electoral candidates, caucus votes. Right. Mm -hmm. Watch your mouth. (laughs) But he was an old man. 
He was 65 years old when he was Thomas Jefferson's vice president. So Jefferson thought, he's not going to run for president after this. My buddy Madison is just going to slide his way in there and Mm. become the next president. No problem. No roadblocks. Here's a rub. Oh, there's a rub. The plot thickens. The plot thickens. So in the 1808 election, when Madison was running, enough people got Clinton to believe that he was a viable presidential candidate and that he should run Mm. because he had New York on his side. So obviously Madison, the front runner, and then Monroe and Clinton were behind. They had a early electoral college just to get him nominated. Hmm. And at the same time, because once again, Clinton is the bridesmaid. Everybody wants him for the VP. They nominate him for vice president. The only problem was he was not aware of that. (laughs) (laughs) He didn't get the memo. Yeah. He was still hardcore (laughs) running for president. Well, the party said, no, once again, you're the vice president. (laughs) Yeah. To that point, even when he find out, he wouldn't recognize it. Mm. Yeah. He was asked multiple times. Hey, man, we're we're good. You're the vice president. Yeah. I wasn't there. (laughs) Yeah. He said, I wasn't there. I don't accept that fact. I'm still running for president. To the point where eventually the party thought he had left the party because he would not respond to their vice presidential nomination. Text messages? Yeah, the text messages. Yeah, They were like, he must have left. He's not responding to our text. I don't know. He just left it on He ghosted us. The linchpin, if you will, was... I will. Thank you. Was when they realized Madison was going to take the office. Okay. And New York didn't want to be left out in the cold. So all of his buddies, all of his electoral votes in New York... Just jump ship over to Madison. Wow. Yeah. So at that point, he just gave up and said, I guess I'll just be vice president. Again. For the funk of it. (laughs) Well, and I appreciate the Ben Stein vibe that you're bringing. Yeah. So he was Jefferson's second vice president, and now he's Madison's first. He's Madison's first. So he was Jefferson's after Aaron Burr, Mm -hmm. and he was Madison's first. But he did not serve a full term. Okay. So pray after, tell why. Pray tell why. Because he died. Oh. Mm-hmm. Hmm. It's almost like they saw that coming. Mm. Mm. They were it? like, "You're old. You should probably be number two. Yeah. He was 69 when he got elected uh, as Madison's vice president, and then he died at 73, three years and one month later. So that left a vacancy in the vice presidents hmm. for 11 months, which they never filled. Really? What about really? his second term? Yeah, what happened? How did they? I mean, so they eventually, they being James Madison, filled it. Who did he? So the other one was Elbridge Gary, G E R R Y. Yeah, some might call him Jerry. Was was he the one who did the gerrymandering? Bingo. Oh. No, seriously, it was named after. It's possible. Was it, it Elbridge Jerry? Yeah, it is. Was he a Massachusetts man? I could be wrong on that. I, I think he, uh, without knowing that he created it, the gerrymandering, but. Uh, I think he was Massachusetts. Just talking about gerrymandering today, he is from Massachusetts, and gerrymandering is named after him. Yes, and I believe it's because, okay, I heard about this on another podcast related to the presidents. I think it was when when he redistricted Massachusetts, it visually looked like a salamander. I'm not making this up. And looked like a gerrymander. <laughs> I'm telling you, man. Dude, we've talked about everything from oyster ice cream. Let's just say that that's how gerrymandering got started. So but I do think that's how it it, it became that's, known. See, this is the type of fire I expect you to bring, Russ. Oh, I bring this fire. The gerrymandering fire, and you're you're coming in with the dead Clinton. 
Which sounds like a dope punk band name. Like, we're or, the Dead Clintons, what or just up? like a shot you would order at a bar. Give me the Dead Clinton. Yeah, give me the Dead Clinton. And yeah. they're like, no, the Clintons make you dead. <laughs> yes, at certain <laughs> bars. I don't know if you're ready for it. Russ, well, thank you, Russ. Thank you. Uh, can't always. wait. You're welcome. To hear about Monroe's vice president. That's okay. So what a what a move to be like, yeah. hey, actually, we already called the race. You're the vice president. And he's like, nobody told me. I don't I don't actually think that's true. Yeah. He's like, I'm actually going to keep running for president. And they're like, it's over, bro. And he's like, mm. I don't know. I don't yeah. know. I got these t-shirts. <laughs> I don't know what I'm going to do with all these hats. Six months after taking office, Madison approves the Treaty of Fort Wayne, which was negotiated and signed by the governor of the Indiana Territory at the time, William Henry Harrison. Hey, to the Hoosier State, let's drink. We're here in Indianapolis. We're having a good time. We may talk about William Henry Harrison again. Dolly Madison mm -hmm. famously decorates the White House. She does. And their old pal Washington Irving, mm. who... I may be somewhat of an expert on because oh. as a child, I played the game authors a lot as okay. a kid. I'm not familiar with that game because I had friends. Yeah. I was raised by my great grandparents. Wow. Um, That's a true story. Kind of. Yeah. For the yeah. most part, we lived with them till I was 10. Um, on the frontier. We, we used to play the game authors a lot, which is basically like go fish. Okay. But instead the cards had the, the face of the author on it. Wow. And then you had to collect four of the books. Okay. Like each card was a different book. Okay. So wow. Henry Wadsworth Longfellow yes. and Nathaniel Hawthorne, who we called Slicky Magoo with the Eyes. Oh my gosh. Um, wow. Shakespeare. Bill Shakespeare. Louisa May Alcott. Oh, okay. To so, name a few. Yes. Actually, when I was in fourth grade, I named a Henry Wadsworth Longfellow book and my teacher was flabbergasted. Mm. She was like, how could you possibly know that? <laughs> how do you know that? Yeah. And I was like, because uh, I'm awesome at the game authors. Like, came out in 1940. You never heard of it? So whenever I see these people pop up yeah. in my life, I get really excited. That's so Washington cool. Irving was visiting the White House, and he raved about Dolly Parton. And then he said, uh, hold oh. On, hold on. Uh, or sorry. <laughs> I said Dolly Parton. I knew I was going to do it. <laughs> now, if I were Washington Irving, and you I saw Dolly Parton. probably be a big Parton, fan. Both wow. great writers. Yes. Um, yeah. So. And Dolly Madison, who you meant to say, was also <laughs> famous for wearing low-cut dresses in the French style. Mm -hmm. And if Dolly Parton were around, wearing. Would have definitely done. Would have definitely yeah. turned some heads. She's like, let's open this children's library. Yeah. Who yeah. wants some oyster ice cream? Jolene. So he raved about right, Dolly Madison. I yes. knew I was going to do That's that. That's okay. And he said, poor Jimmy. He is but a withered little Apple John. What the heck's an Apple John? Which was a thing that they said about people who they thought looked like an apple left in storage too long. <laughs> <laughs> he called him dried fruit? Basically, yeah. Wow. He was like, you're an apple raisin. Mm. <laughs> so, yeah. But, I mean, I get, apple raisin, I get excited when I see Washington Irving yeah. pop up in things. Did he uh, write, correct me if I'm wrong, did he write The Legend of Sleepy Hollow? Was that Washington Irving? Yeah, we're going to talk about that. Okay. So that, that comes up in a future episode. Uh, he was also Ooh. Rip Van Winkle. Okay. That was Washington Irving. He fell um, asleep and he woke up. So it was all written in a specific president's hometown. Don't. It was don't, all based on a specific president's hometown. Don't you. And it's one of the few interesting things about that guy. Don't you dare spoil this for I me. I won't. I won't. Wow. Washington Irving. I did not have that on my James Madison bingo card. Yeah. He was came really close to having a cabinet position, actually. Really? <laughs> yeah. Wow. We'll talk about it. Don't Learn worry. something new every day. Yeah. So let's get All into right. the war. Yes. Here we go. 
So we gained 3 million acres of land, predominantly from the Delaware tribe, for approximately $100,000 in today's currency. So there's a treaty of Fort Wayne. Things continue to go downhill with Britain in 1809. Madison enters into an agreement with Napoleon, who promises to stop harassing American ships if Madison agrees to punish other countries that didn't similarly end restrictions on trade. Napoleon then reneges on his promise, just a classic Napoleon move. Mm -hmm. Britain refuses to change their policies, and Madison's like, well, guess we're going to war. Now, unlike Jefferson, Madison had a very weak cabinet and faced opposition with his own party. So he didn't really have a whole lot of political ground to stand on because already he's fighting off guys from within his own party. Okay? It was like that cabinet and like the plates had tipped and you don't want to be the next one to open the door. Basically just like that plane. Mm-hmm. The famous cabinet of the White House. Not the kitchen cabinet yet. Can I just keep going? That comes later. He gets approval from the War for Congress uh, in June of 1812. Decides it's a good idea. Hey, you know what? I think I'm going to invade Canada via Detroit in the summer. Nope. Ends up being an abysmal failure. The war is funded on already low revenue with high interest loans. So he's he's facing a very, very uphill battle, literally and figuratively. After a disastrous start to the war, Madison actually gets to enjoy some significant naval successes, to say the least, over the very powerful British Navy with victories of over five British warships by the frigate, the USS Constitution. Old Ironsides. Things up north. used to be in that unit. Huh? I used to be in that unit. What? What? First Armored Division, Old Ironsides. Okay, so we should say that Blaine is uh, an active Army military. I also used to live in upstate New York, which is a lot of the 1812 battlefields. Yeah, Lake Sackett's Harbor, man. Wow. you. Man. I ran in a race called the 1812 Challenge. It was 18.12 miles. It ended on the battlefield of Sackett's Harbor. I believe it's pronounced Iran. Iran in the... Oh, I see what you did. (sighs) Things up north continue to get worse throughout 1813 as the British continued to repel Madison's attempted invasion of Canada. He just wanted to take over Canada and ended up burning Buffalo, New York to the ground. This whole time, Madison failed to get his Secretary of War, John Armstrong. Go ahead. You've got a Is that a loss? (laughs) (laughs) It's the first burning of Buffalo. The other one being the four Super Bowls in a row. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you cut to the core of me, Baxter. Why Wide left. Oh, man. Sorry. We just lost all of our Buffalo uh, listeners. All four of them. Enjoy breaking your tables. <laughs> it's just snowing in June. <laughs> yeah. It, oh, man. Uh, thanks for the wings, though, guys. Yeah, thanks for the it, wings man, and the it animal. Ro- it snows from Halloween to Mother's Day up there. Yeah. It's a Deep nightmare. Snow too. Anyway, this whole time, Madison fails to get his Secretary of War, John Armstrong, to reinforce D.C. from an impending British invasion. Things come to a head on August 24th, 1814, when a British force of Army regulars and Royal Marines defeated a combined U.S. force of regular Army and state militia troops at the Battle of Bladensburg, approximately nine miles northeast of the federal capital. Now... To his credit, 63-year-old commander-in-chief James Madison, who had no military experience whatsoever, actually rode his horse to the battle. But first... (laughs) Go ahead. He put on a uniform. Yes, he did. He was like, well, i got to dress up now. Mm. I'm going to go fight in a war. So he just like threw together an army uniform and just ran out into the battle. The only Mm. president to take fire while sitting well in a battle not in a convertible um <laughs> oh gosh that's too that soon on your face. that's just too soon that's too so soon. he's the only one to actually be in an active battle taking fire so washington went out during the whiskey rebellion yes lincoln watched some battles he's the only one because john armstrong incorrectly thought that's fine they're going to baltimore that's you guys are fine. good he went out on a precipice parapet 
if you will. Oh, wow. I, and I watch. I think I will. And the incoming army. And at one point, somebody had to grab him and be like, hey, you're too close, bro. Like, the artillery can hit us from here. <laughs> hey, little Apple John, get back yeah. here. What are you doing? And so Dolly had the foresight to cut out. And oh. I got this information from a friend of mine who used to work in the White House. Cool. A lot of people thought that Dolly, I mean, she famously saves the portrait uh, of George Washington. Gilbert Stewart, yes. She went to grab it off the wall and realized it was drilled to the wall. So mm-hmm. she wasn't going to be able to take it. So she took out a razor blade and cut hmm. the painting out of the frame. Yes. And brought that with her. And that painting has been reframed and is still in the White House to this day. Yeah, she sent it with, I think she wrote her sister shortly after the the, the battle and said it's been sent with two friends from New York. Although I read, now again, it, you Sources may yeah. may differ. I read that that was actually unbeknownst to her. It was a copy of the original Gilbert Stewart portrait. That the one that she cut out was? Yeah. Oh, but regardless, didn't. I mean, for Dolly to go, oh, here come the British. Uh... He told me to make sure I mentioned that. Part. That's cool. That like she cut, she realized that it was important. She couldn't get the frame yes. off the wall, so she cut it out. That's a bold move for the first lady. And it's, I guess, it's one of the things that you learn. It's like of the multiple things you learn working in the White House. Yeah, like that's one of the most important things that they tell. They yeah, tell that's you cool. About. Shout out to Dolly being like, ah, we need to save that. Yeah, that one's important. Oh, look, a razor blade. <laughs> So Madison puts on his, darling, fetch me my battle gloves. And he, he rides his horse to the battle to see for himself what was taking place. He nearly fell into British hands. Like he actually went past the American line, mm-hmm. technically into the British line. Yep. Realized, oh, I need to turn around very quickly. Retreats behind the enemy line. Soon returned all the way back to D.C. And on his way back to the White House, he passes American reserves on their way to the battle. This ultimately leads to the burning of Washington, D.C. by the British, uh, including the White House, where the British soldiers ate Madison's dinner that was about to be served that day and toasted to Little Jemmy mockingly. Uh, and the near capture of the Madisons, who fled to the surrounding countryside separately. So Dolly didn't really know where James was. James didn't know where Dolly was. Mm-hmm. And this was a pretty embarrassing stain on the nation's history and Madison's legacy. The Battle of Bladensburg nonetheless taught him two very valuable lessons. One, it dispelled the idea that militiamen could be counted on to hold their own against an enemy's well-trained regulars. That just isn't going to work. We can now. We can now. Uh, It also proved that an active battlefield really was no place for the nation's chief executive. No. No, just don't, just don't do that. Like, just trust your, trust your guys. Fortunately for Madison and the young uh, American nation, a victory at Baltimore was just about two weeks away. And on December 24th, 1814, the Treaty of Ghent would formally end the War of 1812. But why was Baltimore important? Uh, Baltimore, as as I understand it, uh, Francis Scott Key was an attorney representing, I believe, an American sailor that was being impressed on a British warship. Mm -hmm. Could be wrong about the details on that. Fort McHenry, the Battle of Fort McHenry, is being bombarded. Key uh, writes what would become, he wrote several verses, which would become our national anthem, the Star Spangled Banner. But he wrote it to the tune of an old British drinking song. Did you know that part of this? I didn't. I do know that we don't talk about the other verses. We don't talk about the other verses. Uh, (laughs) They do bring up slavery. It doesn't really go well before the Indy 500. I, I don't know if you've ever read any of them, but they're bad. I haven't. <laughs> what I did not know about uh, until recently when I had to sing it one time. I'm, I'm a singer. Oh, yes. For those of you that don't know, Ryan's a singer. He was in the band Straight No Chaser. Uh, vocal, acapella group. Vocal I'm, group. Man band. I mean, you're a, it's a voice band. It's a vocal ensemble. <laughs> it's a voice band. Yeah, okay. You guys all make the band out of your mouth. I'll accept that. All right. Yes. Um, You use the $5 words. I don't. <laughs> 
the the whole <laughs> I, I bring it down for the people the two pence ways <laughs> the whole the whole verse that you would hear of the star spangled banner the national anthem is a question oh say oh say can, can you, you see, see? dawn's early light so on and so forth it's yeah. a question look it up it's just one long question Huh. Set to a British drinking song that Francis Scott Key wrote as I believe the smoke was was clearing in the in the mist. And of he the saw sunrise. the artillery fire. And he and, saw yeah. that Star Spangled Banner. Mm-hmm. Still going. That's interesting. I'd like to know where that flag, if the, if that flag that was above Fort McHenry is still somewhere. Huh. That'd be I, pretty cool. Like I the actual you. Star Spangled Banner that he wrote it about. Yeah. I bet if anybody knows, be my buddy that worked at the White House. Hit him up. He would probably know that. All right, so in 1815, Napoleon's defeat at Waterloo brought an end to the Napoleonic Wars and what must have been a relief to Madison, the French and British harassment of American ships on the high seas. All right, so Madison's second term was a transition into the, quote, era of good feelings, end quote, which saw the collapse of the Federalists as a national opposition and a surge of desire among Americans for national unity after the war. Towards the end of his second term, he approved federal spending of the Cumberland Road, the first major improved highway in the country that would eventually connect the Potomac and Ohio rivers and help thousands of settlers move west as the country expanded. So if you've ever driven on the Cumberland Road, which is still an active highway, I believe, you've got James Madison to thank. Anyway, Madison leaves the presidency in 1870 and at age 65, as a popular president, and along with Jefferson, he supported the candidacy of Secretary of State James Monroe to continue the Virginia dynasty of our nation's early history. He retired to Montpelier, not far from Tommy J at Monticello, and tried to keep his financial head above water, which, like Jefferson and later Monroe, spoiler alert, remained a challenge for him in his later years. He helped Jefferson to establish the University of Virginia in Charlottesville. That was pretty much... Jefferson's thing, but he was a part in in getting it up and running. He served as the school's second rector after Jefferson's death for 10 years up until his own death in 1836. Huh? As it's what? Rector. Go ahead. I know you want to do it. No, no, you can't. I don't know what a rector is. Oh, I thought you were going to go with rector damn near killed her. (laughs) Um, A rector, like a... uh, Director. Was he, was he director? You mean of director? The, yeah. I don't. Yes. That's actually how we got the term director. No. Uh, rector is more like the, I don't know. If only Neither one of us know what it means. It's fine. Merriam-Webster, one that directs a leader, uh, an academic, a senior official in an educational institution. Yeah, so he was yeah. director. He was right. director. That makes sense. He did that for 10 years. In 1829, at age 78, he was chosen as a representative to serve at the Virginia Constitutional Convention in Richmond for about three months. He was obsessed in his later years with editing and preserving his legacy for posterity amidst his sea of financial woes. He was just, at, at one point, he actually edited and and faked Jefferson's handwriting to a letter to Lafayette. Like he he was he was revising history in his later years. He became so anxious and overwhelmed about how is posterity going to remember what we did all these years ago and my part in it. Well, and you brought up the financial woes part. So far, we're 0 for 4 on presidents that have left the presidency and been solvent. I'm going to fact check you on that. I think John Adams, whereas Jefferson was a hundred thousand in debt, I think Adams was actually in the black, wasn't he? Only because Quincy bought the estate and gave it to him. Yeah, Quincy okay. actually owned all of it. They were all like financially cash poor, house rich. Is that the or way you say rich. it? Land rich, yeah, sure. yeah, yeah, land you're, rich, you're a planter. yeah. Like, because we're still a few presidents away before we get to one. Because Quincy ended up falling on some hard times too, but like. 
that was a weird thing that I kept learning about all these presidents because you hear all these great things about them. Yeah. And now you see their estates now. Right. Montpelier. Monticello. Monticello, uh, Massachusetts. Quincy, Massachusetts. Yeah. You think about it now and you think like, Obviously, they must have been rich. Like yeah. they had all these slaves, and and then you find out like they all kind of died, like yeah. really worried about their financial situation, yes. and often pass that on to. I mean, when when Madison, spoiler alert, the man eventually died. Uh, yeah, he leaves Dolly thirty thousand dollars in in his will to her, but actually that's lower than what he had, I think, originally intended to leave her, and so she then, you know, you get thirty grand back then. That's a lot of money. She's so. like oyster ice cream for everybody. <laughs> that got me that was good that was good but yeah she's she's experiencing financial straits just like he was you know um which just goes to show you if you're the fourth president of the united states leave your wife a little bit more money he dies of congestive heart failure at montepelier the morning of june 28 1836 at the age of 85 uh, he was given his breakfast, which he tried eating, but he was unable to swallow. His favorite niece, who sat by him to keep him company, asked him, What is the matter, Uncle James? And Madison died immediately after he replied, Nothing more than a change of mind, my dear. Did not make it to July 4th. Didn't. Was, uh, is this accurate that his physician tried to get him? Yes. Because at that point, Adams, Jefferson, had passed away within hours of one another, on the 50th anniversary of... And Monroe. Monroe already had it as well. Oh, Monroe had already died at this mm-hmm. point. Really? Yeah. I did not know that. Do you remember he's the last one of the founding fathers? Uh, what that... year did Monroe die? Uh, let me check that. I know he was 4th of July. I don't know if he died before Madison, did he? Yeah. No. Monroe died on 18, in 1831. Okay. So Madison, five years. Yeah. Yeah. So three... Yeah. That. Remember he was the last of the... Oh, you're right. You're right. Yeah. You're right. You're right. You're right. You're right. Okay. Sorry. Sorry, guys. Come Sorry. Come on. You didn't know that? <laughs> I mean, I've just been telling you. you I mean, you said it at the very beginning of the episode. He was the very last founding father to die. I have the memory of a goldfish plane. You know that. Anyway, guys, Madison dies. He failed to free any of his slaves, either during his lifetime or in his will. Upon his death, he left his remaining 36 slaves to Dolly, asking her only to sell the slaves with their consent. However... She sold many of her slaves without their consent. The remaining slaves, after Dolly's death 13 years later, after James's in 1849, were given to her surviving son, Payne Todd, who freed them upon his death. However, Todd had some debts, and likely only a few slaves were actually freed. I don't know, man. there's, There's just something about the Virginia dynasty that rubs me the wrong way. And I've lived in the Deep South. I've lived in New England. I've lived in the Heartland. Now, I know that we shouldn't judge these guys through our modern 20th century lens, 21st century lens. But when I read that, I just go, gosh, man, like, couldn't you, couldn't you have done a little something? You know, like, I, I think that's why John Adams resonates with me. He was like, now, granted, he was not a, you can go back to listen to episode two, but he was not necessarily a, an abolitionist. He just did not agree with slavery. Right. Never owned For a him. Slave. He understood, well... He saw the political reasoning for not being an abolitionist, which is why yeah. he wasn't. Able. He disagreed with slavery. Yeah. It's just, I don't know. I, it's hard for me not to go, really, guys? Yeah, it is. But at the same time, it's, we're not in there. Yeah, no, I we're agree. There's tiny, no tiny way. It's weird because, like, there's really no defending it. There's, yeah. That's it's what it rough. Was. Yeah. It's rough. 
hey, we're going to refresh our beverages and let you hear from one of our fantastic sponsors. Thanks for listening to the Presequential Podcast. Facing the transition out of the military is rarely easy. It doesn't help that the staggering number of options you're faced with can be overwhelming. But there's a light at the end of that tunnel for all veterans, and that light shines brightest here in Indiana. Lucrative careers in fast-growing industries are plentiful. Housing costs are amongst the lowest in the nation. And you can live in the country while being less than an hour from a world-class city. At InVets, we're showing veterans how to translate the valuable skills they've learned to the civilian world while connecting them with careers they can be proud of so they can lead fulfilling, purposeful lives. Go to InVets, that's I-N-V-E-T-S dot org. Create a profile to learn more about Indiana communities, browse the current open job openings in these communities, and receive your free shirt. That's InVets, I-N-V-E-T-S dot org. Hey, we're back. Thank you wherever you are for listening to the Presequential Podcast. You want to dive into his legacy and maybe some little known facts? Hmm. He was largely seen as an outstanding founding father and member of Congress for his work on the Constitution and Bill of Rights, a decent Secretary of State, and passable, if not kind of lousy president. Like, as far as the presidents go, he's like maybe in the top 15 ranked officially. Yeah. Well, he's, he's okay. I think he's third. passable. Yeah, he's passable. Yeah. But kind of, I mean, the whole eighteen twelve thing with—it's just like. Mm. Well, the eighteen twelve thing. What what are you going to do, right? Like, I mean, I, invading Canada was probably not a great idea. He but tried Britain to do it was, like four times. Britain was kind of like throwing some punches, like, "Hey, yeah. what are you going to do about this? Yeah. What are you going to do about this? We're going to keep messing with you and yeah. see how you respond." I did like that he rode his horse out in a battle. Yeah, I was like, "That's yes, that's what a." Go do that, James. Because they were kind of like, we don't understand how you're doing this government thing. If you keep changing who's in charge, like that's going to mess up at some point. So we're just going to throw some punches, kind of see what happens. Yeah. So at some point he was going to have to address it. And then they were also, they understood that they could finance and encourage the Native Americans. Yes. So they were doing that and they were doing that here in the Indiana Territory. They were doing that in a lot of like in the South and they, they kind of realized they could weaponize Mm. the Native Americans Mm. and be like, well, Hey, they're already, they're taking your land and they're doing this and they're doing that. Why don't you go uh, fight them? Mm -hmm. And that there would be times where they would try to have these peace talks. The Native Americans would say like, well, we talked to this different group of white people and they said Mm. that you were going to do this terrible stuff to us. So how can we trust you now? Mm. And then the Americans were like, well, that wasn't us. Right. Like they had bad teeth, right? Like they were the British ones. Yeah. Um, Offense. Any <laughs> British listeners. But the, so it, it was kind of inevitable. I guess I'm just standing up for him for no reason but to okay. play devil's advocate. That's all right. But that's okay. The, the War of 1812, poorly named because it was it's like before and year. after yeah. 1812. I think it was inevitable. It's kind of shocking that we got out of it yes. okay. Yeah. I mean, they burned our capital down. Yeah, they did. Only president to have the capital burned on his watch. Yeah, that part, that's a, that's a nay. Yeah. I think even <laughs> Madison would say that. Yeah, he's, that's on me. Hand up, guys. That's I on me. I did not like that. Yeah. I did not know this, but uh, Madison was on the $5,000 bill from 1918 to 1969. The larger denominations of currency, there was like a $10,000 bill, $5,000, a million-dollar bill. I don't know. Who would have owned one of those? People still do. 
Well, okay. Yeah. People, sure. Yeah. Yeah. But at the time, like yeah. who, who, I don't know. 1918 to 1969. No. Cause $5,000 in 1918 is. An, now, now that was a lot of money back then. That was an incredibly large amount of money. And they also weren't huge fans of paper currency at the time. Yeah. So why would you put that much money into a slice of paper? I don't know. That's shocking. Yeah. We should ask the U.S. Mint. And Madison, I didn't know that. Madison was on the $5,000 bill. 5K, baby. Huh. I wonder how much a $5,000 bill is worth now. I can tell It's got to be. Oh, okay. It often sells for $30,000 to $50,000. Not as much as I thought it would sell. Really? Yeah. Yeah. I would have assumed that would have been two, three million. Oh, really? Oh, I mean, because there can't be that many of them in circulation. Yeah. That's shocking. Yeah. So it's only worth six times what it was originally worth. Give or take. For something that, man, that's really shocking. If you have ever heard someone say, it's a free country, I can say whatever I want. I've never heard anyone say that. Uh, somewhat mistakenly, because you can't say everything. You've got James <laughs> Madison true. to you really... You can't yell fire in a movie theater. You can't. You can't threaten the life of the POTUS. You can't do that. <laughs> that is true. You cannot do that. That is very true. Uh, if you've ever heard someone say that mistakenly, you've kind of got James Madison to thank. Because, I mean, written in the Bill of Rights, the Constitution, I mean, that he was... Pen to parchment, quill to parchment. Yeah. Uh, he was directly responsible for that. So, free speech. I mean, free speech. Free in the press. Good night. Just even the setup of the government. A freedom of religion. Yes. Yeah. I mean, we could go on and on about the Bill of Rights. Yeah. Uh, and we know that you have Governor Morris to thank for that. Mm-hmm. Which we, you might do a bonus episode. <laughs> We're not promising anything. Uh, one, th- two other things that I just learned. Some fun little facts about James. Like uh, just James now, James. he was on his phone while I was talking. Yeah, he had a ballistic missile submarine named after him. Like okay, <laughs> that was a wild ride. The U.S. for me in a few seconds because <laughs> what I thought you were going to say Go was that he had a ballistic missile. <laughs> 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 I was in the middle of, of taking a sip of my champagne of beers and I almost spit it out like what how <laughs> Tell me I like I mean I already know he invented the refrigerator but the ballistic missile get out of here Wow So he had a ballistic missile submarine named Named after after him. him. (laughs) This is why you shouldn't hang on every word, as I do. (laughs) I live in the moment. That's envious. Uh, He also, uh, this was the last thing that I learned about James Madison that I did not know. The James Madison Memorial Building in D.C., which was constructed in 71 to 76 of this past century, 1971 to 76, is one of the three buildings that house the Library of Congress, and it serves as his official memorial. So he doesn't have a monument or a memorial, but that building that houses one of the three buildings that house the Library of Congress is named in his honor, the James Madison Memorial Building. Well, that makes a lot of sense because the current Library of Congress was started because like because of his white house being burned down and thomas jefferson donating his library yes well yeah eh, he got paid he got, for he it he got some money for that selling his library to dc yes. and saying please restart the library of congress yeah he but he did write the inscription on a washington sculpture it is now in the virginia state house and he wrote okay. the inscription for it oh but so would you say that would would that potentially be his the first presidential library then the Madison Memorial? 
Like when did the presidential libraries I mean, it like was, it trend was, start? It was built in the 1970s, though. Oh, okay, that's true. Okay, yeah, yeah you got me. There. I would say the first president to have just a ton of books. You got, I mean, Adams. Well, you Adams. Got, you got to look at Adams. Yeah, it was Adams. Yeah. Washington probably had his good share, but Adams, like that guy, was just like, hey. Yeah, Adams, Adams was yeah, but Jefferson was the one that donated him back correct. because they all got burned. Yes. It was the first book burning. Good uh, night. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Wow. 19, yeah, I think the original copy of 1984 was there. Um. <laughs> <laughs> it was George Mason, not George Orwell. Oh, sorry. Blaine, if you could have a beer, uh, if you could have a glass of champagne. I know you don't like champagne because it hurts your tummy. No, it's fine in the morning. <laughs> wow. <laughs> if you could have a drink of your choice with James Madison... What would you ask him? What would you want to talk to him about? For real? Yeah. What does oyster ice cream taste like? <laughs> that's a no-brainer. That's, that's the that's my takeaway from yeah. this episode. It's pretty great. I don't know. Was that that wasn't in this? That no. was something you learned. No, I learned. I learned it elsewhere. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Because if that was in this book, that's all my notes would have. It would have been seven about. pages it's of oyster ice cream. All you would have talked. Because if I mean, if you saw my notes, like I know you've got to control the timeline, so uh, I just gonna yeah. go off kilter. Yes, I love that. I find like the tiny thing, and I'm like, I'm gonna talk about that for yeah. far too long. <laughs> it, it still makes me uncomfortable. The yeah. concept. Of yes. oyster ice cream. As it should. I mean, that would be, yeah. That That's would not be America's moment. most shining moment. No. That we pioneered shellfish frozen dairy <laughs> Oh, dude. <and> now <laughs> you, you said it that way. <laughs> shellfish <laughs> frozen dairy. Oh, my gosh. Um, what would you want to ask You him? put a prawn on top. Mm, That's exactly what I would want to ask him. Okay. No, I would have. Mm, that. What would you want to ask him? I think what it must have been like to live in Jefferson's shadow for a long time. But I also think uh, I would have loved, in, maybe instead of having a drink with him, I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall in Philadelphia as he's writing what would become mm-hmm. the Constitution, the Bill of Rights. Like, I just would have loved to have seen him in action or maybe pull him aside and be like, what's going through your mind right now? What, what are you thinking about? Like, how far posterity are you thinking how many bottles of wine did it take to get the hangover? <laughs> 16. The answer is 16. Also, like, I, I don't know. Because, like, when I look when I look at things like that, like, I kind of think about the extracurricular things that I just think are kind of interesting. Yeah. Like, how bad did you really hate Charles Porter? Yeah. You know what I mean? What like, was that grudge like? like? How deep was that? Yeah. Like, when you beat him... Mm. The second time, that felt like good, how it? good did that feel? Didn't that feel good, James? Yeah, yeah. I'm sure it felt as bad as watching the White House get burned out. <laughs> Not just Washington, the entire well, capital. And they like legit danced on the grave. Oh, like they, they sure did. Like you said, they were eating his dinner. Yeah, and like making fun of him. And yeah, and how much was in there that we don't know about? Well, I think I think at the time, like Dolly and everybody in the White House was trying to just get out of town as much as they could, try to save as much furniture, try to save documents. I mean, all the things. But yeah. good night. I mean, they they up. did a pretty good job of getting the city evacuated, though. Yeah, the city, although at the time wasn't that big. I mean, there were just no, a handful of buildings. It was, yeah, especially back then, people realized, oh, the capital's going to be here. We should start putting up shops. Yeah. What What was your overall takeaway, though? Because I walked into this uh-huh. like i don't know anything about madison i know virginia dynasty i know the guy that plays hercules mulligan coughs a lot when he plays madison in hamilton drink by the way i i was really impressed by him 
And I think I, I will say this. I give a lot of credit to Richard Brookheiser yeah. for that because the way he wrote it, it was so easy to read and yes. it was so, it wasn't biased, mm-hmm. but it made, I understood the main points and I liked him. Yeah. Whereas I think we ended the last episode and I just had a real uneasy feeling because I think you're yeah. supposed to, as an American, like Thomas Jefferson. I I kind of still don't like I, I like him for like Louisiana Purchase and being like, ah oh, man, thanks for two thirds of the country. Yeah, but I feel like, you know, that's kind of like the as a patriot, you're yeah. supposed to love the founding fathers. And I walked away with like a bitter feeling in my yeah. mouth because yeah. like I consider myself a patriot. Yes. And I don't necessarily think I like Thomas Jefferson and it's weird to say that out loud. It's okay, man. I I liked James Madison. Mm. I liked him. Yeah. I think I I wasn't like overly enthused about James Madison going into it. I was like, oh man, I can't wait to read this book. Yeah, I wasn't either. That's why it was a pleasant surprise to me. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think this book was exciting to me because it was 250 pages long versus Washington out of the gate, 813 pages. Can confirm based on the text messages I got about it. (laughs) Good night, man. I'm like, oh, this feels like To Kill a Mockingbird versus like Good Grief, like Ron Chernow. War and Peace. Gosh. Anyway. um, I would like to get, Russ, we've never done this before. Do you have any takeaways from just sitting here and listening to Madison? So from the research I've been doing. Go ahead. Oyster ice cream, apparently. George Washington was gaga over it. Really? It was his favorite thing to eat at the White House. Oh, gosh. Also, Mark Twain. Was a big fan of oyster ice cream and included it in The Adventures of Tom Sawyer. Wow. And according to the Vice article I read, <laughs> a very reputable source, vice.com, during this discussion, yes, uh, it is making a big comeback. No, in the, no, it's not. In the, the Brooklyn ice cream. Uh, oh, that makes sense. Movement. That actually makes mm. sense. Yeah. Fresh Hipsters oysters. are like, have you ever tried this oyster ice cream? Like, I mean, I like pistachio ice cream and. It mm. sounds odd. That's another step. Nah, that, but that seems like a hipster thing to do. Yeah. yeah, a briny confectionery. I think I liked the book. I wasn't... I do think that that does skew my opinion. Yeah, it does the book was bit. good it, enough. Like, yeah, yeah. Richard Brookheiser did a good job making me interested in James Madison for the amount of time that it took to read this book. I think I learned a lot more diving into his story than I had ever heard about it in junior high high school well, sure. history. Yeah, It's kind of like, ah, it was really short and I wrote the Father of the yeah. Constitution. I doubt the average person on the street knows anything about James Madison. Yeah. Oh, we should get Billy Eichner on that. Tell me about James Madison. <laughs> For a dollar, sir. <laughs> Any other parting words about this? What was the favorite? I, I just love the fact that we talked about oyster ice cream as long as we did. Yeah. That's, that made me well, it wasn't in my notes at all. But now it's in your heart. Yeah, it's true. Way to come back. He was He was the realist. Yeah. And on deck, we've got episode five on James Monroe. Two Jameses in a row, James squared. I didn't realize that. There's something else I learned. Yep. So you learn something every time you listen to the Presequential Podcast, that, guys. I mean, that's on the front of the book. Yeah. <laughs> right there on the title. Well, confession hour. I can't read. <laughs> Wherever you're listening, please leave a review. That really does help. 
uh, with getting new listeners. Share it with a friend who's a fellow history buff and or nerd. We really enjoy this time, and uh, we hope you have as well. Be sure to follow at Presequential on all the social media. P-R-E-S-I-Q-U-E-N-T-I-A-L at Presequential. We made it easy on you. <laughs> really easy. We'll be back with James Monroe in episode five. Thank you for listening to the Presequential Podcast.